Hello, 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 and welcome to the Kayla Says Podcast. This is Kayla, and I actually have another special guest this week. Uh, we have Greg on the podcast with me today. Uh, so Greg is a former registered Republican and a current attorney in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, a little bit of background for Greg. I actually, uh, Greg, I don't think I've actually ever met you in person, have I? I, think it's <laughs> I don't think Twitter. so either, but Twitter counts. <laughs> Twitter sort of kind of counts. So, like, Greg and I apparently have, like, 3,000 mutual friends, um, but yet I didn't know about him until Twitter. Um, so, uh, a little bit of background on Greg. In 2016, he ran for the uh, 22nd district seat of the North Carolina Senate in Durham, but where most know him from, including myself, is from Twitter. So last year, and I believe it was, what, February of last year? Yep, February of last yeah. year. Yeah. Coming up February on February of last year. Uh, almost a whole year. Crazy. Um, Greg became Twitter famous when his rant about our flawed justice system went went viral. So to give a brief synopsis, he was representing a young black male who was being charged with reckless, uh, reckless driving to endanger. The kid told him that he swerved in the road to avoid hitting like a cat, which I personally do. I have like random ducks in my neighborhood and I always have to either stop or swerve to miss them. But, um, however, <laughs> the officer <laughs> on duty says that he was, that the kid was doing donuts in the road, um, with clear 360 skid marks as evidence. So, uh, the boy's mom decided to take pictures at the time, and the pic uh, blatantly showed that there were absolutely no 360 skid marks. It was really just, from what it looked like, a random to-the-right skid mark, as if you're trying to avoid something in the road. So, of course, the case got dismissed, but he goes on to explain how innocent people can get thrown into the system and how police brutality isn't just about, you know, getting beat up in the streets or on camera, but it can take many forms. This tweet storm went viral and everybody from Jesse Williams to Montel Williams took notice and retweeted him. And so now Greg is like Twitter famous. That sounds about right. <laughs> Was that like a decent synopsis you had going on? Yeah, that works for me. All right. Um, so I wanted to sit down with Greg and speak to him about how uh, he became what I like to, or a lot of us say, woke, and why he's actually a Republican, and what we can all do to make an impact with this upcoming administration. How did you become so woke? Because I really, a lot of, a theme that I typically see, especially when you were campaigning and giving your points when you were running for the North Carolina Senate, I noticed a lot of people were like, why are you a Republican? <laughs> your platform and a lot of things you were talking about, was that just like your upbringing or life experiences along the way? Well, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, one thing you got to keep in mind, what folks call woke now was not something that was a thing when I was growing up. You know, no one ever, when someone said you were woke, and then you actually got out of bed in the morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, you know, I was raised by my grandparents in Virginia Beach. I grew up in a military family. Um, spent about half of my time with my mom and stepdad. Spent the other half with my grandparents. And part of that upbringing you know they focused a lot on basic principles you know be honest when you deal with people don't pick on folks don't be a jerk look out for the underdog that sort of thing and 
that's kind of how I, I came up. You know, I'm the oldest of three kids, and I tell folks the oldest child is the one the parents screw up on before they learn how to parent. But Yeah, I'm the know, oldest. I know. See? There you go. <laughs> and I was raised by my grandparents, so I, I get it. <laughs> even better. A lot of older kids tend to be independent, like being on their own, that sort of thing. And that was really how I was. You know, I preferred being off on my own, uh, had my own friends, you know, hated having, you know, a curfew or having to do homework or anything like that. So I came to NC State, and when okay. I got to State, I Oh, oh, I'm not even scared. <laughs> yep. You want me to cover everything, huh? Okay. Right, right, because uh, I went to state too, so, you know, we got to, you know, do a little a little something-something there. I got you. Well, my uh, my senior year of high school, uh, I was dating a lady, and I got her pregnant, and my son was born the summer in between when I graduated high school and when I went to college at NC State. Mm-hmm. So dealing with you know, an unexpected pregnancy, trying to figure out, you know, do you keep the child, do you put the kid up for adoption, how do you pay for it? I was working at Burger King at the time, you know, making five twenty five an hour back then. It seemed like a lot of money until you realize, you know, how expensive life is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that provided a, a set of perspectives that, you know, a lot of my friends didn't have. There wasn't anyone else among most of my friend group, most of my people in my high school that were in that type of situation. So I uh, I came down to NC State later that year, graduated in uh, June. Alex was born in July. I started at NC State in August. Um, and I was there for two years. And at the time, you know, my freshman year I had scholarships because I was a fairly good student. And I had been working at Burger King, so I had some money in savings. And that got me through freshman year, but sophomore year, you know, that stuff wasn't there. And I had run into a situation where I could not get financial aid because Mm -hmm. to do that, there was paperwork I needed from my parents. And my parents wouldn't give me that stuff because they were upset that I had gone to NC State. They wanted me to stay close to home to go to, like, Old Dominion University or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, they wouldn't give me their stuff. I couldn't use my grandparents' stuff because my grandparents had never legally adopted me. And right. I had – my parents had me skip the fourth grade when I was younger. So when I started at college, I was only 17 years old. I didn't turn Mar- 18 until March of my freshman year. Oh, well, so you're a little baby genius. Okay. Basically. <laughs> well, I don't know about genius, but, you know, I was a young <laughs> college kid. Um, but the, the Department of Education – doesn't allow a student to use their own financial information until you're 24, unless you've been married or legally emancipated or you served in the military. I hadn't done any of those things. So I have no way of getting the FAFSA completed because the information the government requires me to provide, I can't get. So at the end of my sophomore year, I basically had to drop out. You know, The mm-hmm. cashier's office at State had tried to help me out. They basically said, look, you know, apply for in-state residency. This was back in August, starting my sophomore year. Apply for in-state residency. If you get it, you're good to go. You know, we'll figure out some way to get you enough to cover the bills. Well, I can't get in-state residency either without an affidavit right. from my parents that my parents wouldn't sign. So at the end of that year, they're like, okay, apply again. If you get it, we'll backdate it. Same type of issue. Couldn't get the paperwork application denied. So. In June of 2000, 
I was in the middle of summer school classes, and the cashier's folks called me in and said, hey, you know, we can't get you approved for any financial aid. You owe us $15,000, which was the price tag for my sophomore year paying out-of-state tuition. And they're like, you, you know, you got to come up with 15 bands right now or, <laughs> you know, Not cut you loose. <laughs> right. 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 So, obviously, I didn't have $15,000 sitting in a bank account. And in the span of a week, my classes got canceled, my housing got canceled, my meal plan got canceled. I got a nice email from uh, the Department of Public Safety saying, hey, you're no longer a student. You're trespassed from campus if we find you. What? You know, yeah. If I was still on campus after 24 hours and they found me, I'd be arrested for trespassing. Um, oh, my gosh. So this, after all those random all homeless people that hang around campus, <laughs> if they don't get there well, for trespassing. I guess because I had an email address, they knew how to reach me. I don't know. Oh, my um, gosh. But, yeah, so that was, the, uh, that was the situation. So I had to leave in June of 2000, and from June until September, I was homeless. You know, I had was dating a young lady at the time who would try and sneak me into her dorm when she could to make sure I had a place to, to bathe. But most of my days and nights were spent in DHL library because back then it was 24 hours a day. And they yeah. didn't check IDs as long as you were inside before 7 o'clock at night. Certain time. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would work at the student center, working at a Taco Bell, trying to make some money. Um go sneak into Teresa's dorm to shower and, you know, wash up, get into D.H. Hill around 6.30 and stay there overnight, you know. And then when I everyone else was coming in at 7, 8 the next morning, that would be when I would be going out to try and catch a few hours of sleep in my pickup truck or in Teresa's room. Mm. So did that for a few months. And then in September of 2000, she got a financial aid refund. And basically said, look, you know, I'm going to take half of it. You and I can get an apartment and we'll go from there. And that was kind of how I started the process of getting back on my feet. Um, she and I moved in together. I got a job at UPS loading trucks from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. Monday through Thursday. That helped keep the bills paid. Eventually got a job at a law firm, which led to a job at the state bar, which led to a job at the clerk of court's office. So even though my major was in computer science, I got really deep in the legal industry. And that was yeah, how I so basically, you, you know, first taste of it. Gotcha. Yes. And that's how I made ends meet for the, the first, you know, the next five years. So in 2005, I've been out of school for five years now. I'm working at a law firm in Durham. And the partners at the firm really don't like each other. And they're constantly fighting over who gets paid what. Well, the partner that I worked for just kind of said, to hell with y'all. And left, started his own firm, and during the weekend before he left, came in with a moving truck, took everything in his office, the computer, the desk, the furniture, the client files, even stuff that didn't belong to him, just took it all. Um, so the next Monday, I'm getting ready to go into work, and I get a call from the office manager and end up getting like a full-blown, you know, deep interrogation about what I knew and when. And oh, I was wow. like, I, you know, I didn't know anything, so it didn't matter. But at that point, the partner that I was working for was, wasn't there. So they were like, look, you can stay here, but you're going to have to basically work for someone else. Or you can take off. We'll give you a month's severance and a favorable letter recommendation. So I realized that 
that was not a stable job environment when partners can just, you know, up and leave. <laughs> right, like up and leave. Right. So I opted for the uh, for the severance and used that time to reach out to NC State for me to get back into school. And they uh, they were very nice to agree to it, even though at that point I still owed them like $18,000 with interest. Um, so I started back at NC State in August of 05 and paid the university a, a monthly payment basically from when I came back until graduation uh, so that by the time it hit graduation time, my balance was finally paid and I could actually walk across the stage. Nice. So that was kind of, yeah, you, that's, that's my undergrad years. When did you graduate from state? 2009. Okay. Oh, okay. That was a, so we were at the same time then. Oh, yeah. We overlapped. That's why we got so many friends in common. That's why. All right. So that (laughs) was, that was your undergrad year. So after the experience you had in the law, in the law firm, is that when you decided like, okay, I want to go to law school? Well, yes and no. So that that was a big factor in it because I realized Mm -hmm. I liked the law more than I liked computer science. Like I enjoy technology. But sitting in front of my laptop trying to debug <laughs> a program until the wee hours of the morning, like, that sucks. That was terrible. <laughs> so I got really involved in student government at NC State. And my senior year there, well, my second senior year, I had two senior years. The year before I graduated, I was president of the Student Senate at NC State, and I was also president of the Statewide Association of Student Governments. So when I was looking at what I was going to do after graduation, I wanted to run for re-election as ASG president, so I needed to be at a UNC system campus. So I looked at NC State trying to get a PhD. I looked at UNC Chapel Hill going to law school, and I applied to Central to go to law school. And out of those options, Central was the least expensive. So having just repaid, you know, 18000 plus all the new bills, I was trying to go as cheap as possible, you know, to get a law degree. And that's how I ended up picking Central. Okay. So, yeah, that's how I ended up there. And it was a, you know, it was a fun experience. I started there in 2009, graduated in 2012, did a lot of stuff while I was there, Um, you know, served on their trial team. They actually made me the president of their student government. So we've only had like six white guys run (laughs) uh, the student government at Central Law School since it's been around, you know, since like 78th year now. And when I graduated, I decided that, I had been so used to running my own life, dealing with being on my own, dealing with being, you know, president of a student government organization, that I wanted to start my own law firm so I could keep that flexibility. Okay. I was going to ask, like, why? Because, you know, most people, like, okay, I'm going to graduate from law school. I'm going to work for somebody or another. Cool. Uh, But you took a different route and actually decided to open your own law firm. Yeah, I like I like my freedom. You know, I've got classmates now that make more money in a day than I'll make in an entire year, and it makes me cry <laughs> a little bit inside. But, you know, I like being able to, if, if I don't have court on a given day and I want to sleep in, I've got the luxury to do that. If I want to take right. off early to go to an event, I can do that. My friends don't have that option. Right. They have to work for somebody. Let me backtrack right. a little bit because this always fascinates me because, you know, being a white guy at a historically black college and university, I think it's I, – I don't know how that experience <laughs> would be for you. Like, I, I understand it from the other side because um, I'm black and I went to a PWI. So, you know, our experiences are definitely 
definitely different. So if you want to briefly just say, okay, you know, it was different going into <laughs> like a white guy being in a black school or right. did you have like a lot of white jokes. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but it was, I was cool with it. You know what I mean? I, right. I, I can't tell you what it's like being a person of color at a predominantly white institution. You know, I will never have that experience. I imagine it's at least somewhat similar to being a white guy at an HBCU. You know, it was something where you get a lot of raised eyebrows. You talk to people in the community when they find out where you go. The first assumption is, oh, you must be here on a minority scholarship, which I thought was hilarious. Because right. um, I, paid, I paid my whole way. You know, my, finally my last year they gave me a scholarship because I finally got decent enough grades. But those first two years I got, got loans I got to repay for those ones. Um, you know, and it's something where there's a lot of discussion about racial issues regularly, but it's something you talk about often enough that it's not weird. You know what I mean? Like it's just a right. normal part of everyday conversation. It's something right. where now, you know, in the campaign is a good example. I would go in and speak with the black ministers and their assumption is I'm bald, I'm male, I'm white, I'm Republican. What on earth could I talk with them about? And man, mm-hmm. we had a fascinating conversation for a solid hour. Oh, I bet. You know, because a lot of the a lot of the issues that they care about are issues that I care about. But even on the issues where we don't agree, I understand their perspective. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You know, take like school choice as an example. I don't trust the government. You know, I grew up poor. So if I know a rich kid is going to have school choice because his parents got money, I want to make sure that a poor kid has that same opportunity. But at the same time, I know that our charter schools don't always do the best work. We got one here in Durham called Castro Heights that's going to have to shut down its high school because it was graduating kids without having the credits to actually meet the graduation standards. You know, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. I've seen resegregation of the classrooms. Because it's mostly the white families trying to get their kids out of the public schools. So I understand those concerns in a way that I wouldn't have understood had I not gone to an HBCU. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. I know when I was, like, applying to schools, and I didn't apply to any HBCUs, I don't think. Maybe I did. I uh, maybe I did. I don't know. I feel like I did a A&T maybe as like a safe school or whatever, but um, I think all the schools I applied to were uh, PWIs, and, and I think people would ask my mom, like, why doesn't, you know, why don't you go to a Why doesn't she go here or go here? And my mom's like, I don't want her to go there. Like, she's not going to be around black people all the time, so why should she right. go to a black school or whatever? And I'm like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. But I do feel like I'm, I've missed out on certain experiences as a result. So if I did end up going doing like a grad school thing, I would want to go to uh, a HBCU just to see what the differences are. But all right. Yeah, it's definitely so, – what's funny is you could tell among your classmates who the folks are that started at PWI and went to an HBCU. And then the mm-hmm. folks that have gone to an HBCU for undergrad and are at an HBCU for law school. Like, doesn't matter whether they're white or black, you can tell that distinction among your classmates, and it makes for a very interesting conversation. <laughs> oh, I bet. So you mentioned before that you're a Republican. So why? Why are you a Republican? Because you seem very – you're conservative, but seem you seem more liberal when it comes to social stuff, social leanings or social aspects. 
Well, so like now, nowadays they call it being libertarian, but mm-hmm. that was not really a thing when I was growing up. Like the Libertarian Party existed, but where I grew up in Virginia Beach, you had conservative slash libertarians were the Republican Party, and then you had the liberals were the Democrats. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's something where for me to be who I am. And I've had the life experience that I've had, naturally being distrustful of folks who have authority over other people, you know, going through a school system where I was taught how the government's supposed to function, taught what the Constitution is about, taught, you know, uncomfortable topics that we don't even talk about today, like the legacy of slavery and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It was ingrained in my mind that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So... I always had this viewpoint of the best government you can have is the one that does as little as possible, but at the same time, you ensure everyone's got equal rights before the law. They've got a means of redress if they end up you know, being screwed over by other people, but otherwise, right. it doesn't do too much because the more power you give to politicians, the more they can abuse that power and take advantage of folks that you're not going to like the outcome. You know, The only people that like politicians – taking advantage of people are the people who get the benefits and the people who get the benefits oh, yeah. are the rich folks cutting the campaign checks you right. know so i always just grew up with the republican party as my home politically you know i started a republican club in my high school before i was even eligible to vote so that's always been kind of my default mindset you know the the liberal social leaning i don't really call it liberal it's i would prefer to be left the hell alone Right. (laughs) Just like I don't want a government doing too much because they can take advantage of me, you know, I apply those same rules to myself. I don't want you to care who is in my bedroom, so I'm not going to care who's in yours. You know, if you're gay, great. If you want to date someone outside your race, cool. I don't care. You know, (laughs) so that was kind of how I I always was. You know, it hadn't really changed. The, The weird part about it was when I came to North Carolina where North Carolina Republicans aren't like Virginia Republicans, you know? Right, because I'm like, Beach, uh, <laughs> the Republicans right. I know or I grew up with or I saw, I was like, I don't understand why, like, even now I say I'm not in the right tax bracket to be a Republican. Like, I, I look forward <laughs> to being in a tax bracket where it would make sense. Whether or not I would be one is still different because socially – I just don't align with a lot of the stuff, but I'm like, I just don't understand being poor and being a Republican because growing up in North Carolina, Republican was different, you know, and it sounds like it's right. way different from the, the Republican party that you were surrounded by and grew up with. Oh, it is. Well, like Virginia Beach is a tourist town, so most people know it for, but it's also got several military bases. So it's military yeah. and tourism, you know, so we love America. We love our tax cuts, you know, we love our small decentralized government closest to the people. And it was also one of the original colonies. It's called the mm-hmm. Mother of States. There have been thirteen states whose territory is taken holder in part from what Virginia had. You know, so there's a lot of that patriotism and belief of, you know, live free or die that was there. You know, so like for, for example, it wasn't unusual having black people in our Republican Party meetings. You know, right. even in the even in the high school club that I started, 
you had people of color in the group. That wasn't unusual because right. they're in the military. They like their tax cuts. They like freedom. You know, we were all on the same page. Right. And when we you said that, my here, eyes got really big. I'm like, black Republicans? What's wrong with you people? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't there, there's plenty of them. You know, there's plenty of them growing up. So a lot of those conversations now that we have, you know, I didn't have growing up because it wasn't that unusual, you know. Right. So I came down here, and North Carolina's got its questionable history with, you know, slave politics and Jesse Helms and, you know, everything else since then. Oh, and there's a lot of – there's a huge religious component to it. You know, I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. In Virginia, don't no one care, you know. It was something that literally no one thought to ask, and if they asked, like, oh, that's nice, you must be from up north, you know. North Carolina, <laughs> I cross myself while I'm praying over a meal, and people's and eyes bug like out, and I get crazy. Told, yeah, I, I worship the whore of Babylon, and I'm going to jail, <laughs> and I'm not saved, and blah, blah, blah. Like, my girlfriend, my freshman year of college, broke up with me when she found out I was Catholic. Didn't oh, my God. Didn't me at all. She was Southern Baptist, a self-identified communist, which is so opposite from Southern Baptism, it doesn't make any sense. But the minute she found out I was Catholic, she could not speak to me anymore because I was jeopardizing her soul. That was the explanation. Oh, wow. You know? Wow. So that was that was kind of my introduction to North Carolina politics. It did not go how I expected it to go. Um, so, you know. You can't kind of anymore. <laughs> right, right. You know, so during the years when I was a college dropout, I didn't have a lot to do to occupy my time other than work. So I got involved politically, and I eventually got elected the vice chairman of the Wake County Republican Party. And the girl I was dating at the time, the one whose dorm I was sneaking into to bathe and whatever else, you know, she and I were together for years. She was black, and she was actually Republican when we started dating. And the more events that we went to, you know, she would go to because she didn't want me to be bored to tears doing stuff as the <laughs> vice chairman for the party, right. um, you know, people were very, they weren't openly hostile, but you can tell. They, they probably looked at her like folks. she was a help or asked if she would help or probably handed her a plate like, oh, could you put this away? And well, she had to tell them, it, it I depends. don't work here. It, it's <laughs> one of two things. Either she's the help or on the other end, she would make a great token. Oh, oh we got one. We we got us a black. Let's make sure we don't let her leave. <laughs> You know, and it was something where when I saw that, like, that was, that hurt. You know, watching that happen, watching someone that I loved and cared about experience that was a tremendous, you know, red flag for me to the point where it, it, by the time my term ended, I eventually got kicked out of the park. You know, we'll get to that in a second. But the near the tail end of my term, when she would come to events, we had come to an agreement where she and I would talk to each other all night because the assumption among the other folks there was that a white dude would never date a black woman. So mm-hmm. it would look like she was engaging the leadership, potentially looking to get involved. It would look like I was able to reach out to these non-traditional members of the party, and we would spend the entire night talking to each other, and everyone would just assume that we were both working the room because – you know, of their, their preconceptions. Right. So it, it was it was terribly uncomfortable. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was the vice chairman for two years. By the end of my second year, um, several members of the executive committee thought I was a rhino or Republican in name only because 
I was dating a black girl. You know, one of my good friends was gay. I was not on board with the Bible thumping because I'm Catholic. People didn't like Catholics. I didn't want to be in a position where government would have the ability to wield that over the Catholics, Jews, Muslims, or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually, they kicked me out. In March of 2000, and gosh, what year was it? 2005, I think. Yeah, March of 2005, on my birthday, March 26, 2005. They uh, had their county convention, and I was not only voted out of my position, but they adopted a floor resolution that I was no longer welcome at party functions. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah. Just so, a little icing on the cake. Right. So I basically I got out of politics then. So from '05 until I came back to state, you know, I was out of politics entirely. I got back into politics by accident because I was doing stuff with student government that ended up bringing me in contact with state legislators regularly. Um, so that was kind of how I got back into it years later. So go through law school, graduate, start my firm. I'm still not really in politics because I'm trying to build a business, you know. Right. And finally, you know, we're three years into the game. Law firm is going fairly well. I'm trying to fix some of the problems I see in our court system because our courts are a damn mess. And I, believe it. I can't I can't have a normal intellectual conversation with a legislature who actually understands what I'm talking about. You know, because you talk to a Republican about court reform and the response is, you know, you want people to be accountable for anything, you want to have murderers running the streets, blah blah blah. Right. And that's you, you not even <laughs> what not about, okay. Right. Not at all. But on the other hand, you talk to a Democrat about court reform, and that's seen already as a Democrat issue. So you get a lot of, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they don't actually do anything because they know it's already their issue. They don't need to understand it. When it comes time to run for re-election, you know, people are going to assume they're in favor of court reform, even though they don't have the slightest damn clue what needs reforming. Right. So it was just – it was incredibly frustrating, you know, because a lot of my practice – it's about half dealing with entrepreneurs, helping folks start businesses, and it's about half dealing with college students and high school students and their issues. You know, their issues most of the time end up being criminally related. You know, I got mm-hmm. caught with weed. I got into a fight with my roommate, whatever else. Right. So on both sides of that practice, I got a legislature that's making it harder and harder to start a business compared to neighboring states raising taxes across the wazoo while they're talking about tax cuts. And then I got these students coming in where we're the only state in the country, the only state in the entire United States where every single 16-year-old without question is charged as an adult no matter what they do. Oh, you know, I didn't even know that. You are, yeah, if you're in class and you've got a phone out, the teacher tells you to put it away and you don't, they call the police officer. You know, that's an adult disorderly conduct charge. You end up in adult Durham criminal court. You know what I mean? So it's stuff like that. How in God's earth do you end up being the only state out of 50 states plus a district of Columbia plus however many colonies? How are you the only one that does it like this? You know, and the answer is, well, we've always done it that way. Well, great. You know, come join the 21st century with the rest of us. (laughs) So aren't we going back? Because – you know, the the mess that's being introduced now of charging kids, um, giving kids, like, assault charges for fighting in school from, what, kindergarten to high school. Oh, yeah. 
Well, having police in school in general is a problem. You know, I don't know if you saw the news, but we had a situation here in uh, Roseville down in Wake County just yes, two weeks ago. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I saw that little girl. He was going to suplex a girl. Right. And she looked to be not even 100 pounds. I'm like, this girl is, like, barely 100 pounds soaking wet. And wasn't wasn't even involved in the fight that the officer was responding to. Right. You know, there were there were two videos that came out. Officer was trying to break up a fight between two girls. She was the sister of one of the girls and was actually trying to break up the fight before the officer arrived. He got pissed and decided to throw her to the ground like a sack of bricks. You know what I mean? Right. Not my child. I swear. I saw that video and I thought, if that were my child, I would need to call you because I am going to somebody's whole ass. Everybody. Everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting it. And their mama's getting it. Like, everybody is getting it. <laughs> I'm going to show my whole ass wherever I got to show it, because that is not going to work out. But, yeah, I saw that. So, having, like, the court systems the way they are, so even when you were going into that and kind of reluctant politician, maybe, <laughs> um, dealing with trying to do the politics of North Carolina, like, why, why run for Senate? I mean, I understand that you want to – have reform and actually have a platform to run on, but it sounds to me like it's so freaking frustrating to get anything done that eventually you would just throw your hands up and like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to get things fixed. Right. Have well, you I mean, the, the ch- keep going with that? Yeah. The challenge for me is that a lot of the stuff that I see that needs to get changed, the issues that I care about, the General Assembly is the only group that can do that, you know, because when it comes to the courts, all of that is state statute driven. You can't change any of it unless you're a legislator. And then right. my work with the university system, all of that goes through the legislature as well. How much they're funded, what programs they offer, you know, what regulations they've got to deal with. So the legislature is really the only spot where I can do something and make a difference. And then if you look at the folks who represent my particular district, my House representative, he and I disagree on a lot of things, but he's one of the only legislators that gets it as far as the court system goes. You know, okay. the General Assembly passed a bill back in June of last year where all police video, body cam, dash cam, yeah. training video, all of it, doesn't matter what it is, completely removed from the Public Records Act. You can't get it. Well, he was one of only a handful of politicians to vote against it. It passed with overwhelming majorities of Democrats and Republicans. There were only, mm-hmm. I think, five Republicans, uh, five Democrats in the House that voted against it. And Larry Hall, my representative, was one of them. So I'm not going to run against him because he actually, you know, he and I are on the same page on some things. Well, my right. senator, he's a nice guy. You know, I've worked with him in the Chamber of Commerce. I like who he was as a person. But in terms of his politics, we actually have a much more solid disagreement. You know, he voted in favor of that bill to take out the the police video from the Public Records Act. He didn't vote at all on House Bill 2, this tremendous disaster we've had in North Carolina. Right, that hell of a mess. Yeah, he just got up and walked out, didn't debate against it, didn't try to propose an amendment, didn't try to slow it down, didn't vote against it, just said, you know what, I'm good. Let me go get some lunch, you know. (laughs) We, uh, yeah. You know, we're now, we now drug test everybody that applies for any kind of welfare benefits. You know, now regardless of whether you think that's a good idea or not, you know, I tend to think it's a waste of money. 
But if you're going to drug test welfare applicants, shouldn't you also be drug testing politicians? Because they're the biggest welfare recipients of anybody. (laughs) They get paid from your money to sit around and go to parties. Right. So he voted, you know, my opponent voted in favor of that, even though that's the type of legislation that disproportionately hurts Durham, hurts his own district. He voted in favor of it twice. You know, so it really was not a hard decision. You know, the question was whether or not I was going to run, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually planning on it. I kind of ran because I was pissed off at the news that was coming out last November, or two Novembers ago, I guess, at this point. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, to hell with it, I'm going to run and see what happens. So it it was not a well-thought-out decision. I did not have a campaign plan when I, you know, filed. I had not lined up endorsements when I filed. (laughs) You're just like, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I was like, this is wrong. No one's going to step up to change it. Let me put my name in the hat. Okay, that's admirable. Well, (laughs) admiration don't pay the bills. uh, (laughs) It it was a very long year, I'll put it that way. My uh, my law firm was hurting by the time it was done. Wow, yeah. I I think I was listening to, um, it was probably NPR because it's the only thing I ever listened to anyway, but... um, and they were saying how it's very hard for people who are working to be in the political arena and hold like these positions, mainly because the positions typically don't pay very well. And most of the people who are holding the positions are people of, of wealth or people of, you know, some substantial means. And they can sit back and do all this stuff all the time where other people are like, well, I also, I, I run my own law firm and I have to keep food on the table. But, you know, I don't want to choose between doing my duties as, as you know, a politician and trying to keep food on my table and feed my family. Like, it's just – so I know I saw some things where they were trying to push for, like, better salaries for some of these uh, positions, but, of course, it didn't work. I think it was a woman in, in Atlanta that uh, was trying to do it, and she ended up just dropping from her, from her uh, political position anyway altogether because she just couldn't afford to do it because it seems like to me anytime you see people that are politicians i'm like oh they come from some giant pile of money half the time like they have really successful law firms that run without them and they collect big ass checks or they work for some you know there's some somebody of some company that's getting all this money and they're able to do that too so Uh it's just i feel like it's really hard to do that kind of stuff when the people who are running the country are people of, you know, your one. These are your one percenters, especially now with these cabinet picks. You have these one percenters that are run, running the country. I'm like, how do you? What What do you think that his overly rich ass? And I'm talking generational wealth. So you weren't even like somebody who could, who was poor, and you brought it and you came up into this money. So you probably still have a lot of these, you know, thought processes of how you grew up. And you think in a different way. No, this is like generational wealth that has no idea what you or, you know, you as a person of not that type of means goes through. I don't get it. Obviously, well, I'm going to sit back and watch and complain because and, I have no idea. So what exactly can be done? Well, the thing you got to realize is that that's common and it's bipartisan. You know, the challenge people have is they like to think that their side – isn't as bad you know our side came up from the grassroots and you know we went through tough times and everything else no you know that's bs you look at president obama for example 
I don't know his life, but the man was a law school professor. You know, mm-hmm. you look at Timothy Geithner, his treasury secretary, dude's a Goldman Sachs executive who's so rich he didn't bother to pay his taxes, and the government didn't care. You know, like right. when I don't pay my taxes, I get certified mail from the IRS, and they're going to go ahead and make my <laughs> bank accounts. You know, this dude is getting a taxpayer salary to be secretary of the treasury, didn't pay his taxes, and literally don't give a shit. You know I mean? Part of my language. Right. Um, you know, so that's that's super common with everybody. So what folks need to understand is that don't expect coming up through any kind of party organization. That's not going to matter, you know, because those party organizations are run by people who've got money and people whose parents right. have money and their brothers and their sisters and their cousins have been serving in political office. I mean, that's what the parties do. You know, right. if it's something where Career you're young and you're – yeah. You know, if you're young and you're broke and you're thinking about running for office, you got to figure out how to build a foundation on your own separate from party system. You know, find a way to make that money. Find friends who like you, who will be willing to donate. You know, get on something, social media, and start building a following. Do a podcast, you know, that sort of thing. And some of the most mm-hmm. well-known people are YouTube celebrities. You know what I mean? Right. So you got to find your hook and build from that. And over time, you build a movement. You know, maybe you run for city council because it doesn't cost as much to do that, you know, and that's how you start. And then eventually you've got your own little coalition of people, and then you start tacking on more folks as you try and go higher and higher up the food chain. You know, if I wanted to be a politician, if that was my goal, I should have run for city council first. My okay. challenge is I have no interest in city politics. I care about trying to make a difference, <laughs> and I can only do that in the state legislature. You know what I mean? Right. But if someone wants to be president of the United States, governor, whatever, and they don't have that privileged background that 90% of politicians on both Republican and Democrat sides have, you've got to start building your group of people that are going to ride with you until the end. Right. I don't. Want to, I don't know anybody that would get. Who wakes up in the morning and says, "I want to be the president of the United States." That would be the job I would not want. By no means. I can. I for me, I don't think I could run for any sort of political office because number one, they're going to find these damn podcasts and hear some of the shit that I say. It's <laughs> <laughs> like this bitch ain't it. <laughs> Just come back and burn me for whatever uh, faux pas that I threw out there voluntarily i don't know it's just a whole political it's like you want to at least for me like i want to be involved and i want to get involved and i know a lot of people who are fired up but it's i don't you know who knows where to start but i guess it's it may be a matter of doing what you can in the area that you can you can do it in you know Um, your strengths you know so if there's an issue that you care about and you've got skill in it you know or you just care about it and you've developed skill in it you know, there are probably nonprofits already working in that area. Reach out to them, help support them. You know, there could be groups that aren't actually organized nonprofits but are in that same space. Join those. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something where you find similar like-minded people who will back you. You meet other folks you can learn from, and you can start building that movement together. Right. Okay. So moving down to the fun part, are you, um, are you, did you ever take yourself away from being like a registered Republican? 
Are you I still registered left, under Republican? <laughs> no, I, I changed my affiliation after the uh, after the election on November 9th. I made a promise on Twitter back in March, I think it was, um, that if Trump won, I was leaving the GOP, and he won. So I followed through on my promise. Nice. Um, so I know you're part of the, the Never Trump movement. Give us a little bit of background on the Never Trump. Hashtag Never Trump. You got to make sure. Hashtag, yeah, hashtag sorry. Hashtag <laughs> Never Trump. We are so, hashtag you know, Never Trumpers. Back during the primaries, we had 16, 17 candidates for the Republican presidential nomination. Like, we had an obscene number of people. And oh, yeah. It was, some like, of them, it was like the Lollapalooza of the GOP. Yeah. That mess was a hot it mess. It was a circus. It was a circus, and all the elephants were on stage. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and some of those folks would have done a good job. You know, I think Marco Rubio would have been great. I think John Kasich would have been great. You had multiple people who were eminently qualified to serve as president. And then you had 13, 14 people who were just kind of, eh. And then there's a big gap of nobody. And then at the very bottom is Donald Trump. You know, this guy is beyond unfit to serve in any political office, but sure as hell not the presidency of the United States that's been held by people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, he's now going to be in that same office, and I'm just like, wow. So the the Never Trump, the hashtag Never Trump movement came about during the primary as more and more folks dropped out. The argument was, okay, time to get aboard the Trump train. It's priority one. We got to defeat Hillary Clinton. The the Never Trump folks were like, well, Hillary Clinton is objectively terrible. But in the span of the spectrum of terrible presidents, she wouldn't be that terrible. You know, she's still right. within the Compared mainstream to- of normal politicians. You know what I mean? Right. We would rather have a corrupt, terrible president that is within that narrow band of mainstream corruption than this one asshole, pardon the language, but that's what he is, <laughs> you know, a nativist, xenophobe, misogynist, racist, you name it. And this dude like all exemplifies it. Yeah. Exemplifies all of it and is proud of it. Oh so, yeah. One of the dumbest people you're ever gonna hear speak and revels in the fact he's an idiot. He thinks it's a source I of know. pride. He really does. He has no idea what the hell he's talking about. And I sit back and I watch, and I'm like, you didn't say anything. <laughs> I just sit mm-hmm. back and think, you didn't say shit. You said nothing. And I just, he's an absolute I just master of saying hands, that. And he's like, it's going to be huge. <laughs> I mean, it's the biggest thing that's ever, da, 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 da. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, you didn't say anything. You didn't answer any of these questions. You didn't reference anything. You don't have – right now I have this saying of I'm Donald Trump to the bullshit. That's when I don't give a fuck about facts. Like, fuck your facts. <laughs> I'm Donald Trump to the bullshit. I don't need facts. I just got me. So right. I just don't I, – I, anyway, sorry. I can go on a tangent, but continue. Hashtag never – No, but I mean, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how it was. You know, we decided that – there were bigger threats to the republic than Hillary Clinton, and the bigger threat was Donald Trump. You know, now I, I disagreed with Hillary enough that I still couldn't vote for. I voted for Gary Johnson, even though he was a pothead who crashed and burned. You know, but it was going to be a frigid day in hell before I ever voted for Trump. And I did. 
a frigid day in hell. I'm wondering how these ridiculous conflicts of interest, like what do you, you, I personally think at some point in these four years, this man is going to have to be impeached. Because it's like he's 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 trotting such such thin lines between uh, what's appropriate and what isn't. I don't even think he's on the what's appropriate line. I don't even think that line even exists for this man. But I personally think he will be impeached before the before these four years are up. I was curious to see what your what are your thoughts on that? No, I don't think it's going to happen. Or the next four you years. Too, you got too many congressmen who are pansies you know forget you know i I probably shouldn't use that word because i don't want to offend somebody with my word choice but you've got a bunch of people that have no spine you know they benefit from doing the go along get along glad handing log rolling you know give me a teapot museum in my district and i'll vote to approve your nominees that's what we've got you know republican democrat doesn't matter that's what you've got you got Republicans who aren't willing to hold a Republican politician accountable, and you got Democrats mm-hmm. that aren't willing to, you know, do everything possible to stop them. Or they are, and they sound like they're utterly lunatics. You know, right? You can have a solidly anti-Trump message, never going to budge message, without sounding like a nut. And right. Democrat politicians haven't figured that part out yet. Interesting. So I don't think there's going to be an impeachment. I'll be astonished if there is. Might be a little bit happy because, frankly, he needs to be gone. But I don't think he's going to be impeached. I don't think he's going to be assassinated. I don't think anything's going to happen. You're going to have 2020 roll around, and you're going to have President Donald Trump running for re-election. Right. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't wish death on anybody, but I'll take some impeachment. But the people he has <laughs> back, like right behind him – it's not much better, so you might as well get the talking idiot. <laughs> right. I suppose. Well, I mean, you, I look, don't know. you look at the cabinet nominations. The only nominee he's had that I'm comfortable with is Mad Dog Mattis. You know, the Mad Dog Chief. Mattis. <laughs> yeah. All right, you when know, you said so that, like, all I thought was Mad Dog 2020, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> well, and the, the crazy part to me is that, you know, Mattis is a Marine. He's got that background. A lot of the rank and file love him. Um, you know, President Obama made him the commander of U.S. Central Command, so he's got that kind of bipartisan credential to it. But it blows my mind that the most important person – well, not the most important, but like the most trustworthy person in Donald Trump's administration is a guy who goes by the nickname Mad Dog. Mad Dog. <laughs> he's the trustworthy one. You know what I mean? Right. He's going to be our Secretary of Defense, and that's a good choice. But I'm just like, wow. You know? He's the only Mad honest dog. guy we've got. Goes by that Mad dog. Speaking of Barack Obama, what are your what's your uh, thoughts on his presidency, his politics, or any agreements, disagreements? I know you uh, <laughs> tweeted the other day <laughs> last night, and I think you were like, I'll agree with his politics, but... <laughs> Right. Huh. Well, you know, it's part of that is a Republican Democrat thing. Part of it is a liberal conservative thing. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people tried to make the argument that Barack Obama was this moderate, 
And if you look at his politics, he's not. You know, he didn't campaign as one. He didn't govern as one. He is a far-left progressive. And to a lot of folks, that's fine, you know. But be honest about it, you know. I, I despise the Affordable Care Act. I've hated it since it was passed. I lost my health insurance because of it. I've watched friends who have health insurance, as they call it, but they're now paying, you know, however many thousands more, plus they've got an exorbitant right. deductible, so they're paying more to pay more and still can't use the health care because they never hit their deductible amount. You know, I think that's been a disaster. You look at a lot of the regulatory stuff that's been going on. Our government has issued so many new regulations every single day that you never have people able to adapt to that. You know, you can argue what specific quantity of regulations is too much. That's an mm -hmm. academic question that smart people can talk about. But when you never have anything fixed, set in stone for more than a short period of time at a time, right. you never have any real business activity because I'm not going to spend my money investing in a new business if the rules might change a year from now, you know. So mm -hmm. if you look at the economy, for example, he talks about having these however many months of consecutive job growth. Well, the reason why is because there are barely any people getting hired. Now, yeah, it's still growth. It's still been going on. But in terms of the rate of people who are getting hired, it's really, really small because there are so mm -hmm. many new regulations coming out from the Department of Labor, the Environmental Protection Agency, like you name it, there's all kinds of new regulations going in place that businesses have to pay attention to. You know, so I, I just think he's been, in terms of how he has governed on those issues, I thought he's been terrible. Now, it's not all his fault. I think Harry Reid is terrible as well. I think him leaving the Senate <laughs> will become a benefit for everybody, you know, regardless right. of who is president. But, you know, that was problematic. So what you had was, from 2009 until 2011, you had unified Democrat control of everything. You had 59 senators. You had however many something in the House. You had President Obama. They just kind of went buck wild with all kinds of really far left stuff. You know, the stimulus. Good Lord, that was enormous. We spent so much money. And I was on the UNC Systems Board of Governors at the time, so I saw how what the president called shovel-ready jobs were, like, not shovel-ready at all. You had so much administrative crap to get figured out first that you just burn all of this public money that could go to something else. Right. You know, so on a lot of those issues, I, I have not agreed with the president's politics, you know, at all. I voted for Mitt Romney. You know, I, I'll, I'll confess, I voted for Obama in 08 because, I'll confess. frankly <laughs> – well, oh, no, no, you didn't. I thought John McCain was too liberal. You know, I, I actually thought I'd be better off having liberal Obama, who I knew was a liberal, than liberal John McCain, who pretended he was a conservative. I you couldn't know? deal with John McCain because of Sarah, Sarah Palin. I thought she was a damn idiot, and they could do better. I just felt like it was it, he was very like, oh, so well, this would be the first black president. Well, let me go get me some random ass female and. Oh, well, this will make history, too, because she'll be the first female vice president. So we're going to make history either way. I felt like it right. was like a piece of candy that he was trying to dangle in front of people, which was right. – I just thought it was bull crap, and they could have picked somebody better than her little simple ass. Yeah, and they probably could have. I mean, my issue with McCain goes back to when I was in high school when you had the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act, and you actually – you know, it's something where a lot of folks only learn about that act from Wikipedia or from the media, 
my class, part of our assignment was actually reading the legislation. And when mm -hmm. you read the legislation, all it does is protect incumbent Congress critters from being challenged. You know, it's something where you can't advertise within like 30 or 60 days of an election. You know, that protects the incumbents from having hard-hitting ads run. They lower the amount you can donate to somebody. Well, that protects incumbents because the incumbents know more people. So you've got that broader network to pull in the money than if you were young and broke but had a rich person willing to bankroll your campaign. You know, right. you go through all of the McCain-Feingold stuff, and it's just a way for Congress people to make sure they can get reelected. And I just thought that was trash. I thought that was totally trash. So when George W. Bush was running for president, McCain is running against him in the primary. You know, I supported Bush because I thought McCain was just not the type of guy that I wanted in office. He's a war hero. I appreciate his military service, but politically I couldn't get with that, you know. So okay. I voted for Obama in 08, was terribly disappointed at how he did his first term. So when Mitt Romney ran, I was like, you know, I like Mitt. Cool. Like Paul Ryan. Was, you know, run with it. And uh, supported them, voted for them. Of course, you know, they still lost. So right. it's something where Obama and I disagree on most stuff. He's done some stuff, I think, well. I think he's done a lot of attention being brought to the court system and how thoroughly fucked up everything is, especially when it comes to federal stuff. He's done a lot of commutations recently of people who are in jail for these absurd prison sentences for basic oh, yeah. drug offenses. You know, right. I appreciate that. I thought that was a good move. I thought liberalizing relations with Cuba, it's time for that to happen. You know, there hits a certain point where the country's been doing the same thing for so long without getting any results. It's time to switch it up. I think Cuba was one of those, and I think it was a good choice. Um, yeah, I hope they'll stay. I hope they'll stick because I have a flight booked <laughs> to Cuba in June. And I'm just watching this stuff like, don't y'all mess up my vacation. <laughs> right, right. You know, so I think he's had some moments that have been that you know I'm on the same page with him on, but the other stuff I just I can't roll with it. You know, the red line in Syria they got crossed and then ignored. The constant churning of regulations in the economy, you know, that's just not stuff I can I can get on board with. Now, with all that being said, I'm sure Trump is going to be even worse, so I will miss Obama. Oh, he's absolutely. yeah. But, what do you call it? A dumpster fire? Something? Something about a dumpster fire? Uh, what, uh, yeah, so it, I, I call it a shorthand, a Trumpster fire. Um, Trumpster fire, that's what it is. Right. One of the uh, one of my friends asked me back before Trump had won the nomination um, what I thought it would be like if he became the GOP nominee. And I posted a Twitter status that it was going to be a clusterfuck in a dumpster fire on the deck of the Titanic, headlined by Nickelback at Waterloo, covered by CNN. <laughs> um, and that's just kind of, you know, it, it picked up and went around the Internet a few times, and I think I was right on the money given how things have gone since. I know. It's such a cluster. I, I don't – I just mm. – I'm in D.C. This uh, I live in D.C. now, so – I'm seriously trying to figure out if I want to get the hell out of the city during inauguration weekend or I'm just going to stay in the house and hope not to see no bull malarkey while I'm out and about. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I may have to go to North Carolina just to get out of the foolery. Right. I was going to say, that's a, that's a tough uh, a tough choice to make. 
You know, it's it's interesting. We'll see. I got a, I got a few days to figure it out. I think that's all I have. So thanks so much for your time, Greg. I really appreciate it. This was very enlightening. I feel like I just got like a total his political lesson and I need to know more. <laughs> I don't typically speak on much politics outside of my opinion because I just don't know nothing. <laughs> and I don't right. want to take time to figure it out. I, I ingest what well, I ingest. Saying, but, I but that's it. a good thing, though, because that means that you've got more important things in your life to worry about than what the knuckleheads in Washington, D.C. are doing. True, but I just feel like, you know, at some point it's going to affect me and mine. So I try to keep my ear to what's going to affect not only me and mine, but causes that I care about, you know, just the simple crap of don't be racist. Don't put laws in place that, you know, disproportionately affect, negatively affect people of color or people of religions that you think are X, Y, Z or and just in any of that crap, really. So it's always keep an eye on it. But at the same time, I'm like, once you keep an eye on it, like, what the hell do you do about it now? Hey, you on that. So, Amen to that. Well, look, yeah. if any of your listeners want to get more education, have them follow me on Twitter. Great, yes. Shameless plug. So tell them where to find you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so I, my, my Twitter handle is at Greg, G-R-E-G, underscore, Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. And uh, I, I talk a lot of politics, so just kind of be forewarned, but always love talking with more people. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much again. I appreciate it. And if anybody wants to reach out to Greg, I will put that information in his Twitter his Instagram, uh, I'm sure you got a Facebook page, all that jazz yep. in the show notes. So thanks for listening. I appreciate it, man.